I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Trevor Evans, conservationist and founder of Secret Creek Sanctuary. G'day Trevor. Hi Adrian, how are you? Very good mate, and we're here at Secret Creek. Mm. It's not much of a secret now because we're letting everybody know. It's not so secret creek these days. <laughs> it shouldn't be a there. secret. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's a beautiful spot. We had a bit of a walk around here. I mean, can, can you introduce us to Secret Creek for the listeners, please, mate? Yeah, it's a, um, a fenced sanctuary area. It's um, about 10 hectares uh, of that fenced area. People say you come through the Jurassic Park gates. They're quite a large yeah. set of double gates to come through to um, you know, into that protected area. And then from that, we have about a 1,000 acres of uh, wild bush behind us, um, several mountains and gullies and, you know, great habitat and great bunch of wildlife living on it. It, it is beautiful. And you've got some of the animals that used to live here within the, the fenced part of the sanctuary, mm. haven't you? Yeah. Well, in the Blue Mountains now, we've lost a lot of the species, through mainly through the fox. Um, and we have things like brushed rock wallabies and redneck paddy melons and potteroos and bettongs and all those little small mammals that have now gone from the Blue Mountains area. People get married here, they can have a meal here, they can go for a wander and do a night walk with you as a guide. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, everyone seems to like it. I built a place for me, really, and what I've done here is um, kind of float on. Everyone seems to think it's a good idea, so they turn up, I guess. And... Uh, yeah, we um, really enjoy the work we do, and it's all about wildlife conservation. You need to kind of make some money to to do the work you do because everyone knows conservation don't pay. And we often say, like, we, we wish more people and government would get involved in monetising conservation because, I mean, you're very passionate. I've known you for many years and watched, watched your journey. If you don't, like you say, if you don't have any money, you can't do things like this. Mm, you need to have that profit centre ticking away behind you, cranking money back to you so you can actually do the things that, you know, saving animals, basically you can't get funding for it anymore and you've got to do it as a passion, but you need to then fund it as well. So it's it's a very important part of it all, that's for sure. Just before we did this interview, I saw the smallest tiger quail I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. <laughs> what, sorry, what was his name again? Quentin Quarantino. Quentin Quarantino. <laughs> and he's about the size of a mouse. Yep. And he's a tiger quoll. He will get up to six, seven kilos possibly. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, left out of the pouch by his mum. She was out sunbaking, got too relaxed, I think. Left him behind on the grass in her, in her enclosure. So we kept an eye on him, hoping she'd go back. And she did go and sit on him and try and get him into the pouch, but he didn't reattach. So when he got cold, he had to come in. And so now I've been hand-raising him. Um, no one wants the real little ones. You've got to do it yourself. So, <laughs> so yeah, he's going well, though. He's kind of doubled in the size and weight and got his spots and about to open his eyes. So it'd be nice when I can close my eyes for a bit longer than two or three hours. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> three, four-hourly feeds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's amazing to see an animal that small lapping, isn't it? Mm, yeah, he just started lapping the last few nights, which does make it easier than, you know, feeding with a small syringe. So you're passionate about conservation, and one of the things you guys do is you breed things like the brush-tailed rock wallaby and the tiger quail and the eastern quail. And mm. Yeah, we, we mostly um, basically keep the area we have here for those endangered species from our region, and uh, hopefully we can educate all the young children that um, 
don't get to see these animals. And I got, as a kid, I seen brushed-tailed rock wallabies in the wild here in Lithgow on a place behind my house called the Wallaby Rocks. They're always there. They're, they're not there now. You know, foxes have taken them out in the, in the mid to late 80s. And so, you know, my grandkids that are here, I've got, you know, eight grandkids, um, they get to see brushed-tailed rock wallabies, uh, eastern quolls and all those species that were around you know, long before even I was a kid. Eastern quolls disappeared, you know, in the 60s, so... Yeah, it's just a benefit having your grandkids to be able to see them, let alone all the other people that come here as well. That's right. We, we were walking on rocks this morning. We went for a bit of a walk before we came here. Where were we, Steve? One of the lookouts. Yeah, there, there was a few lookouts all in one area. Mm. That, we were oh, that would have been um, Hassan's Walls Lookout. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. Hassan's Walls Lookout. Which is the highest uh, lookout in the Blue Mountains. Well, we were walking around those rocks and just imagining, like, this is perfect rock wallaby habitat. Oh, yeah. You, they should have been everywhere there, and they would have been one day. But they're all gone. So, um, yeah, sad to see that happen, but we have a population here and um, it'd be nice to think that we can fence our 1,000 acres into the future and have them in the habitat here in larger numbers. Do you ever think that they would be back out up there, like out in the wild again? Or do They do turn up. They do turn up in the Blue Mountains in different locations every now and then and they're, they're animals that are dispersing from a from a main population. There's a couple of populations right down in the Wallamai Wilderness area um, that we used to monitor. We used to do a bit of uh, volunteer work with parks to count scats and, and have a look at the populations, and they were continually coming down in number, unfortunately. There's a small population at Janolan Caves as well, but um, you know they turn up in these strange, strange places. They, they disperse, and you find these young males looking for new territory. So they're trying hard, but um, I think they need a little bit more protection. You took us into where you keep your mountain pygmy possums <laughs> and they're hooked up to, what is that, like a fridge? <laughs> well, they, oh, they have, an, op- they have an option. <laughs> yeah, it's a 12-volt, it's a 240-volt car freezer you know, that you take out in the bush with you and you can set it on any temperature you like. We've got it set on minus two, minus three and I sort a hole in the side of Evercool-sponsored esky and put a log through into it and some uh, bedding material and so our mountain pygmy possums that you know come from the snowy mountains and live under at the moment probably three meters of snow in their rocky outcrops um, have a choice to go in and be at minus three go into torpor and, and act out their uh, their lifestyle so um we're at a thousand meters here which is probably about 300 meters lower than their lowest known habitat and uh they do quite well. They they like it. They're fat and happy, and and they're sleeping quite well at the moment. So, yeah, it's uh, just one way we've tried to manage it, basically. And I was interested because you had one of the enclosures had access to the the gradient that goes right down to minus two, hmm. and the other one's got the local conditions, and you're and, monitoring the weights. Of yeah, yeah, we're looking at um, two different uh, populations with. Um, obviously, you, can, you don't put your females together. You can have a group of males and one female. They all get along fine. So we have one female with her mates at ambient temperature here at 1,000 metres during winter in Lithgow, uh, which has been cold. We've had snow and lots of good frosts and things. So we get we had a few days at minus 12 recently. So um, they they have that ambient temperature and the increases and decreases in, in um, temperature that occur here. And then we have a constant minus three temperature as an option downstairs in the other facility for our other female and her partners. So we're just looking at body weights and uh, whether those two pygmy possum populations vary in body weight and their food requirements and looking at seeing whether pygmy possums into the future could probably live at a thousand metres. 
and it's all to do with climate change and, and people like Mike Archer and, and, and other people in New South Wales um, are looking at um, what we're doing here and supporting what we do as well. They were only known from fossils from, like, the Pleistocene, weren't mm, they? Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, Mike Archer does say, you know, those pygmy possums haven't changed their form for many millions of years and have found in fossil evidence exactly the same as they are currently and uh, have now kind of evolved in our snowfields and retreated back to those high elevations, but should be able to live down in rainforests and, and lower altitudes. So a part of the work we do here is looking at, you know, can they live down at 1,000 metres and below? Um, we know they'd live at lower elevations at other facilities, and they um, manufacture the uh, temperatures they they stay in like refrigerated shipping containers and things. If they don't go into torpor, they only live for like six years. And if they do go into torpor, they live for 12 uh, years. So that torpor is a really important part of their life cycle. And uh, if we can have a play with that torpor and make it shorter and maybe keep the lifespan, um, those sort of things might help them live into the future through climate change and some of the, the weather conditions that might you know, be drastic changes in the future. Yeah, it's very interesting. We've often joked about, you know, it's not funny, but we've still joked about um, <laughs> a- yeah, Antarctica as it mm. warms. You know, yeah. One day we'll be able to release things like that, put some alpine vegetation in Antarctica and have yeah. mountain pygmy possums. You never know. Well, it is part of Gondwana, it, it which is. we were. So um, maybe there is, you know, as it thaws out in Antarctica, there might be remnant seed that could grow its own vegetation. Mm. You, you don't know. As it's exposed to more and more sunlight and warmth could happen it's true and when you, you mentioned seed and you start talking about plants mm. i like plants don't know if i've mentioned um <laughs> you've got the biggest wallamai pine i've ever seen yeah Can you tell us a little bit about that one yeah our wallamai pine we're very proud of that one we've planted along the creek there it's um it was the first wallamai pine planted by dave noble the guy who actually found the wallamai pine out you know about 35 k's out in the wilderness area behind us so we're in the typical uh, habitat for Wallamai pine, so it grows really well in this north-south aspect canyon and uh, really important about where you place them. And That one there is 12 or 14 metres and it um, was planted by Dave as the first tree he planted after finding the Wallamai pine, so um, it's pretty special. We, we, we named it Julianne because his wife's name's Julianne and so is mine and they were there on the day to help Dave and I plant that. So yeah, it's a pretty special Wallamai pine, that one, and grows really well and and even though it's a drought, surviving quite well. So for a big tree, mm. that was actually extinct. It was only ever seen as fossils. True. Right? Yeah, true. That's insane. Yeah. Do many people get to see them in there? They, there are um, people that go out to the site. Um, they've restricted it now because of Phytophthora, which is a fungus that uh, they believe is now being introduced to the area. But there's, there's, I think there's about 100 in the original big population. There's a smaller group of 20 or 30 downstream, which are younger trees. That's the only place on the planet they're known. We grew them here because they're another local endangered species and we've put them in up and down our creek line and we have a couple grown in pots, <laughs> should I say. And uh, and they're an amazing tree. They're a dinosaur tree. They're, they're from millions of years ago and they're, they're doing quite well here. They are fire sensitive, which is an issue, and I think that's why with the increase of fire, you know, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, they disappeared from all the canyons in the Blue Mountains and just this one canyon survived with no fire for all that period for them to, to live on. It's an amazing story. Mate, you're a wealth of knowledge walking around with you here, just hearing your stories about 
you know, the plants and the <laughs> animals. How did how did you get into this kind of thing? I don't know whether I got into it. It was just me from the start. I got, you know, <laughs> there's pictures of me as a kid, you know, four, five, six, with a possum in my hand or a kangaroo beside me or all these lizards and snakes and things which horrified my parents. But um, I've just always done it, basically, from a young age and, and just continued the process all the way through. Just an interest in nature. It's a good, healthy thing for young kids, I think. Yeah, I think so. Need too. more of it, don't we? We need more of these young kids on iPads to get out and actually get their hands dirty and catch a frog in the swamp or something. <laughs> it's true. It's so yeah. powerful. It's how it starts. Was it your first line of work, working in like the conservation industry, or uh, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I started uh, basically started as a labourer first, and then I got a job as a or apprenticeship as a fitter and turner at a power station locally so it was big industry for me for a long time but obviously i'd do that during the week and then every weekend i'll be in the bush either walking fishing doing all those sort of things and uh yes yeah, so i was a, a apprentice for four years and went straight into coal mining so i was an underground coal miner for 20 years and a variety of different mines and and um and still ran a, a conservation-based business on my days off where i ran my own tour company from about 1986 through to about 1990 yeah, so it was a pretty interesting process here in this wild area. We had mostly international guests and uh, would take them for weekend walks and talks and tours and looking at mostly looking at wildlife and um, habitat and the World Heritage Area, which is now Wallamai. Now, you did mention that you got the sanctuary, the fenced mm. area, but beyond the fenced area, can we talk a little bit about what lies in that beautiful bushland that is yeah. the rest of Secret Creek? Well, we, we don't have a back fence. We have the sanctuary fence, obviously, but from there our property goes back for about three and a half kilometres and we have... Um, we have about a thousand acres altogether. It's part of our not-for-profit organisation. Own that, and it was actually donated to our foundation by a coal mine who owned the property. So, um, came kind of full circle. But um, on that property, we've got a lot of endangered species. But in saying we don't have a back fence, our boundary or the next lot of houses behind us goes all the way to Musselbrook. So it's like three hundred kilometres of Wallamies directly behind us. A little bit of forestry. Um, so there's a really big wild area behind us we you know our dingoes here get howlbacks from dogs or dingoes from out of the national park behind us yeah so uh it's really good to see that we have those sort of animals coming in but on the property we have giant burrowing frogs and red crown toadlets and giant dragonflies blue mountains water skink breastal fascicales tiger quolls all those sort of things turn up here powerful owls lots of different bird species i think our bird lists up to 168 species over 20 years recorded for this area so yeah it's um it's an amazing place right on the edge but i'm a kilometer from main street as well so it's a um, pretty interesting situation we have ourselves in here your restaurant and cafe here mm. I, I, I just got to say i just want to go back a step your house we were in your house right now we mm-hmm. we had a cupper at the restaurant just earlier you've built all this mm-hmm. Isn't it's, it just it's, stunning? It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, uh, well built. It's using as many natural materials as you can. Your, your house is made of mud bricks. Logs, yeah, pine logs, bark logs. And... Just, it is absolutely, <laughs> yeah, amazing. Mm. Um, all recycled. Yep. And the restaurant itself, your daughter is the head chef? Yeah. Yep. And she runs a restaurant now, yeah. And it's completely <laughs> vegan. Yeah, we're completely plant-based foods and 
as you know, you had to have your first almond coffee today. We don't have that. Was nice. Yeah, <laughs> it, was actually, it was actually nice. Yeah. yeah, I've had almond milk and it's like kind of sweet and nice, but that in a mm. coffee, mm. it worked. Oh, that's good. Yeah, we used to run the restaurant, or I used to run the restaurant previously with the sanctuary, and you could actually order a kangaroo steak, and it was all about sustainability and eating things that come from you know from our environment as opposed to eating. You know, cows or har hooves that were having an impact on our environment. And I do a lot of traditional Aboriginal food with, you know, paper bark and barramundi and natural herbs and lemon myrtle and all those sort of things. And, and, and it went fantastic. But when I'd had enough of and run myself into the ground running this restaurant and wanted to do more wildlife conservation, I give it to my daughter. We worked together for a while and then she said, I want to make it vegan. So I give it to her to run. And she's done a fantastic job. But contrary to my expectations or my ideas on how it happened is uh, I said, you know, there's not many vegans in this coal mining town, these big steak-eating coal miners. <laughs> they're not going to be eating plant-based foods, you know. And and when I ran the restaurant, probably 60 or 70% of our business was local people. And then we get our percentage from Sydney and, and from the region, you know. And so that whole dynamics changed when we went to a plant-based restaurant. And it falls into the ethos of looking and caring for animals, looking after and caring for animals. And and so now the the situation is we get all these guests from Sydney and the Blue Mountains that come here and um, and they come to the restaurant because it's vegan. And we get a few locals and that's increasing. But um, the whole dynamics changed. It was a big step by my daughter because veganism back, you know, 40 years ago was just a kind of borderline thing. But it's a huge industry now. There's a lot of people looking for plant-based foods and looking at the impacts of um, you know, growing beef on the planet and, and the impacts it has. So now it's a booming away and um, people like coming here and they enjoy being able to eat plant-based foods and look at native animals and, and be able to get a tour and a walk and all those sort of things as well. So it kind of fits in really nice with what we do now and people seem to enjoy it. That's good. It does all fit yeah. in together, doesn't it, like that, when you look mm. at trying to save animals and, and then the vegan restaurant and that. Mm. I hate to say it, but it does. <laughs> <all> <laughs> it absolutely makes sense. And, and the good news is that the vegan food's come a long way. It's yep. actually quite delicious. Mm. And even if you do eat meat, you don't have to eat meat every yeah. meal, mm. do you? No, you don't. You can just cut back, as I have. I've cut back on you know, meat consumption, and one or two nights a week I'll have meat, and the rest I'll have other things. So, Like last night here at the restaurant, we did uh, degustation night, so it was a sample of all the different things that Tineol actually creates meals. And in doing that, you know, we had 80 people in for degustation night and um, seven small courses, and it was as popular as ever, you know, it was went really well and it's a, a good way of raising funds or having a profit centre to put back into conservation. Another thing you do is you, you work closely with volunteers and, and young people in the, in the town that want to get into the industry. Yep. Yeah, we um, take on a lot of um, like certificate three and certificate four TAFE students to do their they're practical here. Um, there's not many options in the Blue Mountains or in you know, Lithgow or further west even to to work in wildlife conservation. Um, so we take them on and uh, train them as much as we can, and and a lot of them go on to into you know, bigger areas in the city, go to other establishments through us. It's also getting the message out there, training young people up, and one day someone might jump into the seat so you can have a day off. <laughs> <laughs> so that'd be nice. But um, but yeah, we also do um, work for the Dole Program. Um, where we um, have people that are long-term unemployed looking for new skills. So we, you know, we'll build a little cabin or we'll do some work with wildlife or do tree planting. We do lots of tree planting 
off-site on different properties and members' properties for koala trees, for you know, bank restabilisation of waterways and those sort of things. So over the years, we've planted thousands and thousands of trees and we've, we've had all these international guests that come like and stay with international student volunteers and um, some winters we've had six groups non-stop come and stay for two weeks they go home another two weeks another two weeks and kind of wears you down a bit but especially if you're digging all the holes <laughs> as i do but um yeah we, we've planted lots of trees on lots of properties and, and and old farming properties that you know have changed their practices and fenced off creek lines and and uh, re-established creek stability they've been great projects yeah beautiful place for mm. people to come and work and get some experience and obviously we've had chad on the show from featherdale and we've had tim from australian reptile park and you you know these these yeah, guys really yeah, well so yeah. if someone does a good job you might pass their name over oh yeah for sure you know there's a lot of our um young people that have trained here have gone on to other places like that and vice versa you know they they send people here to do leaf collection and things like that for their koalas and so we all work together and the great work Tim does with Aussie Ark and uh, with the Tasmanian Devil Program is really good. We we take a few of their post-breeding animals, give them rooms for more breeders. So we all do our little bit with each other to kind of help each other out. It's great. You introduced us to your koala, Yuki. Mm. Yuki, yeah. Yuki. Um, Yuki's a bit unusual. Yeah, she's pretty special, isn't she? <laughs> um, yeah, Yuki um, came to us from another... Um, establishment and was found that she's a hermaphrodite koala she um she appears male on the outside but has internal female organs as well so it's a little bit confused about who she'd like to mate with and uh, who she gets along with so um we uh, we took her on as a project basically because we had to obviously get all the permits to hold them which probably took the longest <laughs> um build a facility and make sure it was you know to all the standards and um Yuki's been with us now for about 18 months and, yeah, she's a, a pleasure to work with and a great story, um, even though she can't contribute to her own kind by breeding more koalas. It's a great story to tell people about koalas and as an interest factor in her being hermaphrodite. Mm. And I have been corrected by some people who have been visiting these. Oh, it should be intersex is the word now these days. <laughs> and, and I've since done my research on that and I found that intersex only applies to humans. Hermaphrodites apply to animals. So is that because, an because <laughs> animals don't get offended? Or? Yeah, maybe they don't have an action group with them or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so she's hermaphrodite, yes, not intersex. And, uh, and so, yeah, we get a... An opportunity to talk to people about that and we um you know the plight of koalas and their habitat and the things that are happening with you know their habitat especially around the big cities where they're clearing a lot of the prime land for subdivisions and things like that so yeah one of our members one of our board members dr jim shield he, he's first guy to train a koala detection dog and uh, we support him with a lot of his work with detection dogs now for other species as well yeah, it's um, it's another field that we kind of have off to the side. They're doing some koala detection work for, you know, places that are putting a road through. You can go through and look in a tree ten times and not see a koala, but a dog will see it one there every time. So, yeah, they're a very important part of it. I reckon the dog would smell it a mile away, wouldn't they? They do. They they pick them up pretty quick. Yeah. Um, you told us something very interesting earlier about Tasmanian devils. Mm. You've got devils here steve and i've always noticed that at parks they always tend to run around the outside of the exhibit yeah it always looks quite 
almost depressing because of her outlook on mm. bears and tigers walking up and down an exhibit it's always been like oh a tiger's doing that well in captivity in zoos yeah. they're always running around but yeah you point. i have a different view on that yeah yeah, yeah with devils as everyone knows devils aren't the fastest animal on the planet and they're not a an effective like hunter of um of fast animals but they the marathon runners are as most devil people will know they they'll run for three days on a sick wallaby to run it into the ground to to feed on it and um they'll just stay on the scent and just keep galloping along their little pace and they've got to be really fit to do that so then they're long distance slow runners and uh in in if you put them in a pen they need a running track basically to keep fit and well so they're basically exercising. They're not depressed. That's what they'd be doing in the wild. So um, I'd encourage devils to have a running track in their enclosures. And, uh, you know, some people kind of put obstacles across it and those sort of things to slow them down, but you're actually you're going to end up with a fat devil because they don't get to exercise. They're just getting free meal every day. So, you know, if you can have a little bit of a running track, keep them fit and healthy and then feed them, you probably have a better-looking devil. I really like that. <laughs> Insightful. <laughs> completely different outlook when I'm at the zoo watching this thing run around going yeah. oh blimey poor thing but no it's actually doing what it needs to be yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. great well, that's my view on it anyway yeah mate I'm going to ask you a complete random question mm. uh oh here we go <laughs> one of my volunteers just happened to ask I and mean, we've got a tiger coil at home and she asked who would win in a fight not that they ever would <laughs> between a tiger coil and a Tasmanian devil what are your thoughts yeah, it's uh, interesting. Um, well, there are two animals that probably would meet over a carcass in the wild, but I think the, the devils are big bullies, basically, and they just push a tiger quoll off its off its prey or off its uh, feed. So um, I think they wouldn't get to fight in the wild because a tiger quoll's a bit smarter and would, wouldn't risk an injury taking on a, a devil. It's like a, a lion and a leopard, basically. The leopard's a bit smarter and quicker and would get away from that, um, that kill. So... You know, I don't. I couldn't see them fighting. It would, never, um, it would never happen. I don't think it'd happen. You know, and one lives in the trees, and one lives in a hole in the ground, basically in a den. <laughs> so very rarely they get to meet, other than on a kill. So yeah, it's just thinking it through and going, well, you know, on a kill, like a lion and a leopard, and maybe a an eastern quoll would be a, a smaller cape hunting dog or something. You know, they they'd all kind of take their turn at the kill, but they wouldn't probably confront confront each other or fight over the over the kill so and I, I think the back of the neck of a devil is pretty thick and strong and thinking of a tiger quoll bite you know yeah. i don't think you'd have the jaw structure i know they bite hard but devils are pretty tough so i think the devil would win out every time just being a bully just hip and shoulder out the way yeah yep because <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought being agile and mm. quick and that the tiger might do it it, all, it comes down to that saying the, the big fit guy always beats the little fit guy makes sense gotta ask mate why is it called secret creek a lot of people ask that question and there's a variety of answers um it's a bit of a hidden spot up in here and um there was an old fishing gag. I used to catch a few big fish and Blake would say, where did you catch that big fish? And I'd go, Secret Creek. Where's Secret Creek? It doesn't exist. You know, it's a secret. It's behind Invisible Mountain, you know. So, <laughs> so you never give away your fishing spots. But when I bought this property up here, it was a bit of a tuck away and um, we were looking for a name. And we found that um, the creek wasn't flowing. It was just dry and empty and it was a bit of a secret creek. But sooner we'd get a bit of rain, it would be all flowing and looking fantastic. And we'd go, well... 
you know, it's a bit of a secret creek. It formed nice little ponds, but they'd be gone in a week. And uh, we'd actually bought the property from a mining company um, called Genders Mining. And uh, about 100 years ago, 90-odd years ago, they uh, they mined under this whole area here. And there was no rules back then. Uh, Mr Genders was renowned for not taking the coal from where he was supposed to. And they mined underneath the creek, which is highly illegal these days, obviously. But because he mined under our his unnamed secret creek now, but um, he under that unnamed creek, he mined, cracked all the strata and all the stratigraphies all cracked. So we lose our water underground into the coal mines, which are only about 20 metres below us. So we, we've been thinking about what we should do and, and we've gone to a local coal mine, talked to them about doing a rehabilitation program green the place up again and actually get the creek flowing so there's been a few options thrown around a bit of survey done and uh, we might be able to seal the creek and put it back to where it was and put some nice little glaxia mountain glaxia and bull glaxia and maybe some platypus or some native fish we have a number of small native fish two spine blackfish things like that back into the creek and get some really nice habitat going for all the we have we have like eight species of frogs around here that just need a bit of water to to do well so um yeah, we'd like to rehabilitate the creek, and that's why we um, we basically had one of our members do a fundraiser for us last year, and he raised about 20000 towards it. He paddled the Murray River um, non-stop, and uh, it's a big story in itself. But, yeah, we, we'd like to fund uh, a platypus pond and get a bit of aquatic conservation going. Like lining the creek, would that be a liner, or would you have to seal this creek from 20 metres down? We'd have to seal, do it from the surface. Yeah. Um, and there's two options. We can either do a spray concrete type product um, that's flexible. So we basically get a machine and clean the creek out. Currently, it's just full of like rubble, I suppose. You can take all that rubble and use it as habitat. So we could spray concrete and then put all the rubble back in and form it up so it looks natural. Or we could do the same by using a, a, an industrial type liner. And that liner would go in and then we'd put a bed of sand and things over it and put all the logs and rocks back in and let it to fill up without leaking out. So it could be an easy so we, process. Yeah, we could. Um, the spray concrete option is like huge and machines and men and all this noise and everything, but a, you know, a, a liner, I could roll it out and kind of do it nice and quiet. Mm. I wouldn't say I'd do it with a shovel because a couple of these ponds here are about 70 metres long. So we're looking at the liner option and we've actually found a liner that... Um, looks like might be donated so um that might uh, solve the problem so it might be a new project in the second half of the year work for the doll it could be a work for the doll program yeah we'll see how we go we always spend some funds on it that we've raised as well so there's a couple of options there you mentioned platypus are they in the waterways around here they are there's quite a few platypus in the area it was like not far from here was was when charles darwin sent his first platypus at willarawang about 15 kilometers away so it's a pretty historic type you know, thing to have. Yeah, we, um, If you have a look through Charles Darwin's diaries, when he came over the Blue Mountains and through Lithgow, he mentions Lithgow and he says, under every bush in the Lithgow area was a long-nosed potteroo. Mm. And they're all gone, there's none here, except here at Secret Creek where we hold some. So his grandson, um, he ran a few tours recreating the steps of Charles Darwin. He lives here in the Blue Mountains, Chris Darwin. And uh, they came to Secret Creek to see Potteroos as per his diaries for that trip. So it was pretty significant a few years back. It was good. Wow. Mm. That's incredible. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Pre-cats and foxes. Yeah. 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 
So, yeah, Charles Darwin went through the area and went to Wang, seen his platypus, but he also went into the Walgan Valley and stayed down there in a really old homestead, which I, you know, was a part of recreating or bringing back as well. It was a fantastic project. So, yeah, Charles Darwin and conservation and all that sort of stuff is significant with um, with the area. Got to ask you, do you know Charles Darwin's... Chris, Is yeah. it grandson? Yeah, grandson. Chris Darwin, yeah. Really? Do you reckon he's someone we could get on the show? Or? I reckon you could. Yeah, he's... Not, um, not this trip, but that'd be pretty he was, That'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> I've seen him uh, at the uh, Strange Geographic Awards last time they were on. He was here. And so he's, he's actually a vegan. And he he lives in the mountains here. Yeah, so he'd be a great person to get on the show. Wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did a sustainable trip from Australia to the UK, used a bicycle and in most of it, and but sailed on a merchant ship to get there and, you know, lots of stuff. So it's pretty interesting. Obviously, your passion for wildlife and conservation, mm. has that seen you do much travel? Yeah, I've, I love having a look at other examples of what other people are doing. So I had the opportunity to... Um, to do a trip to Africa, I got a. Uh, my wife gave me a hall pass. I think when I was for my fortieth birthday to go to Africa, <laughs> and so, so prior to going, I actually sent some emails across to different conservation projects for different species to Namibia and Botswana and South Africa, and and said, look, I'm coming over. We're, I'm a guide in Australia and have a little sanctuary. And open arms, they greeted me, and I went to like twenty different conservation projects and uh, got to see, you know, cheetahs in Namibia and and all those sort of places, and and met some fantastic people and looked at all the things they did to make it pay, and and they do it so much better there than what we do, saving their species over there. You hear a lot of bad things coming out of Africa, but geez, there's a lot of good things happening as well. So I brought a lot of that information back you know, to do and change what I do here as well. Looking at, you know, their architecture and how they present to people and how they treat their tourists and all those sort of things. And it's an institution over there in South Africa. They, people, for a weekend away, actually go and stay at a game park and will go out for dinner and instead of going to a restaurant, they'll go on a game drive to get a species ticked off. You know, they'll, they'll want to see a leopard or something. And they talk about their yearly holidays and they'll know exactly what year they seen you know this antelope at that park you know so they're a lot more conservation minded over there i think it's got to help them with tourism i mean having the big iconic animals over there i think mm. obviously you, you're friends of john wamsley he did a lot I, of work i with work with john, john yes we work for john yeah yeah and uh yeah we we spent some time uh putting together um earth sanctuaries i worked with um with Chris Chapman and John Wormsley um, basically taking on the East Coast, coming out of South Australia and building sanctuaries like Scotia and things like that. Chris and I went on a talking circuit up and down the East Coast to universities and anyone else that had listened to us and took the membership of Earth Sanctuaries up to about 14,000, 15,000 people, and, um, which led to the listing of a stock exchange of, of the conservation work that he was doing. So I think that was the first conservation group listed on the Australian Stock Exchange wasn't so successful but um went on to you know build some great sanctuaries and do some great work and which set up a lot of you know the modern day thinking of actually fencing areas and protecting species and and knowing when you wake up in the morning they're all still alive having that fenced area you know there's a lot of conservation projects where you go to bed at night you don't know if you wake up in the morning if you're going to have any left and and that's the case yeah in in sadly in in a lot of reintroductions and things where you just don't know unless you've got some sort of solid barrier to protect them and until we find a better method. I was going to lead into talking about the big animals in Africa, mm. massive tourism kind of you know, trigger for people. A lot of our animals are quite small. 
Yeah, well, we got the small five. <laughs> That's the way we should market it, you know. And they're harder to see and harder to find, and which probably intrigues a lot of more people as well. So we just got a different group of animals here in Australia that you won't see anywhere else on the planet. We just don't appreciate them. You know, our government don't appreciate them. They don't save them. They don't put the money into it. In South Africa and the Nibia places like the government go in 50% shares into projects to save different animals. They, they do it a bit here, but... It's it's very much um, privately driven over there. A lot of private money goes into it, which helps the government, but which helps the private people as well. So, yeah, we just need to up our game a little bit. We've got to choose between whether we want foxes and dogs and cats or our native species because they won't be here forever. It's a lot of work just keeping the ones that we've got here now. That's right. We're, they're, they're at critical stages, and then they've been like that for a while. Some species, we've, as we know, we've got the worst extinction record on the planet. And that can only continue if we keep the current attitude. What can people do? Like people that are listening, they they don't want these animals to disappear. Yeah, support the projects. You know, there's lots of projects around the place. People trying to save, and you know, and it's really hard living in a big city and knowing what you can do. But if you earn plenty of money, put a bit back into a project. You know, there's lots of projects. There's you know, the devils and all these different. There's quolls in South Australia. All these different projects. Harry knows wombat projects and things just support the one that touches your heartstrings you know get involved and then go and visit once a year and and find out more information and tell your friends get involved and uh, you don't have to do it you know physically but if you can support them at least you know someone's looking after them if you're passionate about it we can't rely on the governments can we well we can't wait because they change every four years so um, with governments they change your mind every four years you know so um when you've got a government you know that's now saving wild horses as opposed to you know crobbery frogs it's a pretty sad day you talk about the snowy mountains yes <laughs> and we all know about it but um the only thing i think is going to change that is a change of government and, and that happens regular enough where we hopefully don't cause too much destruction with with six thousand feral horses running through our only piece of national you know snowy mountains park in australia you know it's a pretty sad day really so it's pretty hard to put a long-term plan to something if the government keeps changing all the time and you've got to yep. jump through more hoops. and yeah, yeah, you just need a constant plan you can stick to. If you can stick to a plan and continue with that plan and know it will be funded or continue into the future, it'll work. But if you keep chopping and changing all the time and things are made difficult and legislation changes and things like that, it just makes it harder. And uh, most people involved with wildlife conservation know that. You're always kissing someone to make them feel good saying get what you want big shout out to the people that you know do fund yes. private conservation and there's a lot out there we have a great membership base here you know with our foundation we have great support and we get great donations in and we wouldn't be able to survive without them and i think you'll find most conservation projects around the country have that base support but you can imagine how much more if we're all working together on projects like that what's the name of the foundation you're affiliated with again mate sorry we started Australian Ecosystems Foundation about the same time as we started Secret Creek, and it was to save eastern quolls, basically, And because um, there was no one had eastern quolls in, in New South Wales when we first started 18 years ago. And our first six quolls came from John Wormsley in South Australia, uh, through Tasmania to South Australia to here. And so that was done through uh, one of our members donating, you know, the, the money for six quolls at $1,000 each back then. 
and the donation, you know, I donated a building. I built a building and put it all together to achieve the goal. So, yeah, it kind of starts off with a group of people that are interested who are willing to throw their money in. And, and from there, if you're doing all the right things, people follow you. Australian Ecosystems Foundation. Yeah. Put a link to that. Yeah. yeah want to check that out. We've got a really good um, Facebook page too. We've got like 5,500 followers that um, wait on couple of posts a week that we send out especially that little tiger call there we had a while ago he's been on our facebook page and you know we put on things about koalas and different species and you know i think some of the best number of hits we got i think one was a funnel web spider oh really yeah thirty-five thousand people seen this funnel web spider standing up and dripping a bit of poison (laughs) which live on site here you know at secret creek the funny things you don't realize People get in. I suppose it's scary things attract the most attention. Yeah, yeah, they do tend to, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I love it mm. that you, you. What we always always talk about is the the habitat focus. And yeah, you guys, you guys have that in bunches with all this yeah. thousand hectares of uh, remnant you know, bushland. That's what people got to realise too, isn't it? It's not yeah. all about the fluffy things. And well, it's hanging on to some habitat where things can actually survive, and then managing it so that. You know, we, we still do uh, predator management programs where we reduce fox and cats numbers as, as much as we can. If you can reduce the numbers down, it gives them a bit of a chance to survive and, and basically cohabit in the area. But you breed a smarter, a smarter native species when the, the predator numbers are low. Give them a chance to adapt. Yeah. You made a really good point about um, rewilding. You know, mm. you don't want to just grab, a say, an eastern quail from Tasmania and just pop it in a... You know, a New South Wales forest. You talked about having a um, like more like a soft release. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I've always advocated that you always look after your founder population. So if you if you want to breed, say eastern quolls, it's a good example because everyone likes to see them back on the mainland and surviving. But to have a founder population in a fenced area it makes more sense where they, they then know the, the local food source, they know the local habitat, the, the, the weather conditions and all those sort of things. But you breed them up within a fenced area and you have a fence so that when they want to disperse, they can actually go over that fence. And um, in doing that, you basically remove as many introduced predators from around the fence and in probably concentric rings out from that fence, the predator numbers will increase. But quolls get a chance to go over the fence and disperse and in an area they're familiar with with food sources they're familiar with and less predators they're more likely to survive but the key is having that source population protected and continually dispersing new animals out Um, and i think that's probably a better methodology Um, and it's something we've advocated for about 20 years but it's also expensive you've got to build a fence and uh, they're not cheap you know they're 30 or forty thousand dollars a kilometer based on your habitat and topography. So um, I think they're worth the, the cost, though. If you want to save a species, you need to pump the money in and, and do the job properly. Yeah, and I think most Australians would be behind that. Mm. So, and play, people like Australian Wildlife Conservancy are doing a fantastic job with their, you know, fencing off parts of... Some are fenced, some are unfenced, but fencing off habitat, removing predators and putting them, putting the local species back in is just... It's just a no-brainer. And it's something that, you know, as we mentioned, John Wormsley started 25 years ago and, and was kind of run out of town in New South Wales for trying it because <laughs> it's a bit too radical. Um, but now it's an accepted practice. And um, I think we've got to increase that until we find a better option. 
Yeah, well, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy took on a lot of his um, sanctuaries. Didn't they, they did. Yes, yeah, so I remember taking Atticus around, showing him those sanctuaries when John was finishing up. It was John's goal to have one percent of Australia fenced. It was, I believe, yeah, in all the different habitats. Yeah, do you reckon that'll ever ever happen? Well. It, if you have a look at all the different um, conservation groups that are now doing that, um, you know, Australian Wildlife Conservancy and all those larger, like Bush Heritage and, and all that, if you have a look at all the maybe fenced areas around Australia, now you might be getting close. You just need to cover a few more habitats that probably aren't fenced to, to save some of those species. But He was ahead of his time. What uh, future plans have you got here for Secret Creek? I'd really like to fence the, the, the big area behind us and um, there's... None of this Blue Mountains kind of canyon cliff country that's fenced um, and uh, represented within the uh, reserves around Australia. So things like brushed-out rock wallabies that were here when I was a kid could go back into that area um, and the potteroos and the betongs and hopefully eastern betongs, which did come from this area, as opposed to rufous betongs, which we currently have. Um, so a lot of those species need a big area um, and a place that people can visit and walk through and feel like they're in a wild area as opposed to a sanctuary that's small and, and concentrated. So um, we, we've got the, certainly got the land. Um, we've certainly got some beautiful walking trails through it and some signage and things, but um, we still have incursions of um, wild dog, dingoes and, um, and cats and foxes especially. We don't seem to have as many cats as a lot of places because we have a high dingo concentration behind us, so I think they thin the cats out and the foxes. You've got a couple of dingoes here, that just out your front we door. We do. Yeah, we have some alpine dingoes. There's one little enclosure or an enclosure here at the front of the house, and one that side, one that side. So I'm surrounded by dingoes. <laughs> and uh, breeding season can be interesting when they all want to howl four or five times a day. So it certainly keeps us on our toes. But, um, yeah, dingoes are a species that we need to kind of, as an apex predator, we need to look after those in our wild areas of Australia because they're, the, they're probably one of the key things to remove those other introduced predators like foxes and cats. And uh, dingoes have adapted in all the habitats across Australia. And so have cats. You know, foxes are restricted to this south-eastern corner because of their fur and, you know, temperatures and things but dingoes are an unknown or an untapped resource in in controlling introduced predators and uh, we need more of them do you think it'd be interesting to knock down the dog fence there might be a bit of a bit of a stir (laughs) but i think there's you know probably an opportunity to do that with um, better stock management things like that you could probably do that I, i tend to have a theory that once dingoes and dogs form larger packs through breeding with dogs and having larger litter numbers and things that they revert back to hunting um, farm animals basically of all different shapes and sizes but um yeah i think dingoes left as purebred dingoes in their small family units have enough prey out there they they tend to stick with their native um, choices basically in their food selection and hopefully rabbits rabbits don't seem to be much of a problem not in this area they're Khaleesi viruses basically hammered them. Um, in a lot of the areas, you don't see rabbits much anymore at all. So having no rabbits has obviously caused the biggest problem with some of our native species because foxes used to eat plenty of rabbits. Now prey switch and feed on our you know, smaller mammals. So and all our everything under smaller mammals, you know, all the insects and frogs and geckos and lizards and everything. So foxes eat the lot, as do cats. But um, 
rabbits probably were saving some of our small mammals at some stage, would I dare say it. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Mm. What would you say to somebody that that wants to help in their local area to help mm. wildlife? Obviously get involved if you're... As I mentioned before, not everyone's physically able to get involved, so donate or educate or talk to or share, you know, all those sort of things. But if you want to get out and actually get your hands dirty, go out and the simple things, planting trees. Everyone, you know, likes to plant a tree. It feels good to plant trees. Put back a bit of habitat, stabilise the creek, make sure that the plants that you get are, you know, from the area, they have some provenance to the area and, and a benefit to the species that are there. So um, we uh, we do tree planting programs every year, and we have now for like over 20 years. We plant trees from our local native nursery. We even help collect seed. They they grow all our local species. Uh, we order through them. They make some money out of it to continue. Uh, we usually get a supporter that will fund the trees. This year we have a really good supporter for koala trees. Koalas are flavour of the month at the moment. So we have about five thousand koala trees that are from the local area seed collected here and we'll plant those on one of our members properties on a standard paddock that's been cleared previously for for stock that they don't use uh, we'll pay for a bit of uh, stock exclusion fencing across one side of it and uh, in october we'll plant about five thousand koala trees that will be used not necessarily by the koalas from that area but there's a lot of koalas in captivity like we have one here but those trees will be trimmed each you know probably three, four months for koala fodder for koalas in captivity, for example. So it also then puts oxygen back into the air, improves the soil, all those sort of things, um, stabilises the riverbank. So those trees are really important for all these other reasons. And there'll be other species using them, of course, with birds in the area and insects and all those sort of things. Get out and plant a tree. It feels really good. If you're not digging all the holes, it feels really good. <laughs> 5,000 holes yeah. when I'm done today. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't. I've, I've, um, just because of my size, everyone seems to think I should have the matic, you know, or the post hole borer. So, so I've dug plenty of holes, but I've planted a fair few trees as well. And uh, it's been really good that we've had so many international students that come to Australia and stay with us. And uh, we'll get a group of 10. They'll, they'll plant 5,000 trees in two weeks. You know, we, we start them off slow and get them into little teams and get a bit of a rhythm happening. Those sort of things. They get to see some really nice remote areas of Australia and we plant out some riverbanks and they have a great time. And in the second week when they know what they're doing, we have a bit of a competition and uh, we get as many trees in the ground as we can. And uh, you go back today of trees you planted 10, 15, 18 years ago and they're just monsters and they're standing along the creek and there's everything else that's grown around them. It's fantastic. It's good to look at the problem. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Trevor, thank you so much for your time today. Making Stephen I feel so welcome. I've had our first almond milk coffee. Yeah, and great. It was nice. We'll have more of those. Yeah. <laughs> great place. Guys, thank check you. out Secret Creek. We'll put links up to the, the Facebook page and the website. Mm. And, uh, mate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Adrian. Thank thanks you. very much, Dave, for coming. Thanks. And, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you.